My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Welcome to the Damnificast, a podcast where uh, a bunch of people, uh, Dean and I included, watch a show called Damnation uh, and talk about it, and usually through um, a pretty Marxist and leftist lens. Uh, we've uh, gotten into the habit, a good habit, of inviting people on the show, and this week we have Drew Van Land. Drew, do you want to say hi and who you are? Hey, how's it going? Um, I am a, a PhD student in philosophy, social and political philosophy at the University of Kentucky. And I, yeah, I'm a Christian, uh, communist, interested in most of the stuff that uh, this show covers. Cool. It, if, you, uh, if you remember in the way back um, Magnificast uh, catalog, Drew was on an episode pro- something like 100 years ago when he <laughs> uh, went to the Socialism 2018 conference and told us about it. It was pretty cool. So... If, you, if you're craving more Drew content, that's where you can get it. <laughs> and Drew is also an ICS grad, so we've got that in common. That's the Dean oh, nice. connection. Right. <laughs> the, the Dean connection. We all got one. Yeah, the one degree of separation. This week on the Damnificast, we're talking about episode four of Damnation. It's called The Emperor of Ice Cream, which features um, a lot of uh, really tense politics, a shootout, murder, and also ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, uh, Dean, do you want to do the honors of reading the Wikipedia summary? You know, I'd love to. Um, all right. If you have not seen the episode, I encourage you to watch it before hearing this extremely dry presentation of events. But either way, you're going to get it. Uh, here it goes. Connie Nunn arrives in Detroit, where a man named Earl Donahue is leading an auto worker strike. In Iowa, Calvin Rumpel tells Creeley that he's taken matters into his own hands He's arranged to have milk delivered to the local ice cream vendor in a ploy to stop the strike. But when a bootlegger's truck arrives at a blockade outside of town, Seth and the farmers figure out that the moonshine barrels actually contain milk. They terrorize the men in the truck and send a message to Rumpel and Creeley. Amelia confronts newspaper editor Bert Babbage for not covering the farmer strike and reveals to D.L. Sullivan that she's the secret author of the pamphlets that have inspired him. In Detroit, after Earl Donahue's wife and child leave the house, Connie kills Earl and other strike leader men and discovers that one of the men had seen Preacher Seth and received one of his pamphlets in Iowa. Seth tells Amelia that Creeley is his half-brother and that Creeley's mother was a prostitute. Seth says Creeley doesn't have an ounce of grit and is all talk. Creeley successfully pits the corn farmers against the milk farmers with Victor, one of the dairy farmers, agreeing to deliver milk to the ice cream shop. When Victor makes the milk delivery in town under Creeley's protection, a shootout occurs. Creeley shoots and kills multiple armed corn farmers with stunning quickness and accuracy while claiming to act in self-defense. The stunned, blood-soaked Seth cowers while the formerly meek Creeley stands over him telling his brother, people change. It's good. That was a great dramatic reading of Wikipedia. <laughs> Thanks. I've been practicing. <laughs> good. That's great. Okay. Before we go any further into the episode, uh, Drew told us before we started recording that he had some interesting historical and personal connections to uh, Damnation. So, Drew, tell us all about that good history. Yeah, so it's called The the Emperor of Ice Cream, right? Yeah. 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 So um, I grew up 
just over half an hour north of Lamar's, Iowa, which is part of where uh, this story took place. Um, the, the original uh, events that inspired Tony Toast to uh, kind of, you know, spin out this yarn. And uh, there was the farmers' holiday strikers, and um, some of it took place in Lamar's, Iowa, where there's a famous, or you know, like at least regionally famous ice cream um, company called Wells Blue Bunny. And the Teamsters have been trying to unionize it for a long time, um, but you know, it it was it had just been started around this time, so I don't think it's accidental that like ice cream is worked into the story here. Um, Lamar's had been the uh, temporary office of a woman named um, Mother Bloor, who was a communist organizer in the 30s, and uh, she was especially active in Sioux City, which is, is nearby. Um, Sioux City was called the hotbed of communist activity by the Iowa National Guard. And uh, anyway, I've, I've kind of geeked out on this stuff since uh, learning about it, because having grown up in, in the area, um, it speaks to not only kind of my political interests, but also tying in, obviously, to all the religious stuff with, with Preacher Seth. So um, the interesting thing that happened in Lamar is just as a quick historical note that made this um, kind of a, a nationally noticed uh, labor event was farmers dragging a judge out of a court and then hanging a noose around his neck and th threatening to hang him um, in this town. So anyway, uh, this is like a town famous for ice cream, so that's just kind of the background to the episode. <laughs> it's a town famous for ice cream and also hanging. And a also judge. hanging that's a judge. Great. It's the two things that any town wants to be known for in the United States. <laughs> uh, that's cool. How do, uh, just this is um, I don't know. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, or if you don't really know. Um, but that's really interesting that uh, you have this personal connection to this history. How does how do people in that area talk about this history? Like, do they, are they proud of it? Is it just like a weird thing that happened? Yeah. So, you, like, did you learn about it in school? So I hadn't even known about it. Um, my dad is a history teacher. He's really interested in, you know, local history and stories and stuff. And I asked him, and he had no recollection because uh, three of my four great grandpas were farmers during this time you know, in, in Northwest Iowa, where, uh, you know, near where this fictional county uh, is, you know, assumed to exist. Um, and my dad hadn't heard anything from it, you know, from his family or whatever. But um, we also That's have crazy. a conservative streak in our family. So I don't know which, <laughs> I don't know if they would have been on the right side of things anyway. So yeah, well, either way, it's cool that you know. <laughs> um, well, what do you guys think about the episode? Uh, I think it's pretty good. It's a good one. Uh, I'm still interested in how these characters are developing. Uh, there's a couple of people I wish would develop a little more quickly, or I guess uh, I, I'm i still wondering how to get invested in, in a couple of people, especially Connie Nunn. Maybe we'll talk more about her later. Uh, but I, I, I still remain impressed that I think the show is maintaining a certain pace and momentum. The character narratives are still driving. Uh, and that thing that we've kind of pointed out before of the real stakes of the labor movement uh, is still being represented in every episode in a way that I think is still really compelling and uh, challenging and sometimes hard to watch in a very important way. So yeah, I dig it. Uh, lots to talk about, but my initial impressions are I'm, I'm still on the train. I'm still into it. Yeah, for sure. Man, this episode, I mean, you're, you're right what you said about the, the real stakes being present. Um, in this episode, what really struck me was, um, so Victor, he's like the 
the one black dairy farmer in town, I suppose. I mean, there's other uh, people of color as well, but he's just the, like the one in the story that is drawn out. Um, but the 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 really the nuance of the situation with him this in this uh, week's episode is so fascinating to me. I mm. love it. Um, we'll we'll talk about it probably a lot in a minute. <laughs> Drew, what what's like the big standout thing for you? Okay, so first, I don't think you guys have covered this yet, so I just got to mention it. Calvin Rumpel is like the poor man's Conan O'Brien, right? <laughs> like yeah. I can't stop thinking that every time I look at him. <laughs> yeah. Man, uh, I was gonna—I just about called him Conan Rumble. Uh, in that negotiation scene where they're sitting and they're like trying to talk with the union or whatever, and uh, Kelvin Rumple's there, he is like—he's at the whiniest he's ever been, <laughs> and his like arms are crossed, and he does look like a big angry Conan O'Brien, but also like a thirteen-year-old in a suit. Yeah, I, I I love in that scene when uh Calvin Rumpel stands up and uh, he pulls those imaginary strings that are tied to his hips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. So it's a good episode. A lot of good stuff going on in it. Um, yeah. So maybe we could just start from the beginning, which is, as I've heard, a very good place to start. Um, so the show opens up. Um. The, or at least the scene that I remember opening with. Maybe it's not the actual beginning. Whoops. But the, the scene I remember is between uh, Bessie and Creeley, and they're kind of having this back and forth. Um, Bessie is dressing Creeley's wounds because he had been hung in the episode before, if you'll recall. Um, but after all of that, there's this interesting thing where, um, uh, okay, so Creeley gives Bessie, like, more money, and she's at first kind of, like, surprised by this because I think... I mean, it's clear, right? Like, she actually cares about him, um, though she will not say that to his face or to anyone else's face. Um, And uh, him giving her money um, is, I think, kind of a bummer because it's kind of, like, diminishing their relationship or something. But she takes the money because she is saving up to buy a house. Um, Yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about all of that? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. The, um, I mean, (laughs) there's so many, you know, themes that have echoed through the kind of almost century, you know, separating us from the time period of this um, drama. But uh, obviously one of the more recent ones is just the absolute tanking of uh, African-American home ownership over the last, I don't know, 15 years or whatever, especially since the great recession. Uh, But it is really interesting to see like the picture she has of her dream, right? The, her kind of her vision of, of liberation in a sense is, like a house with a white picket fence, right? Which is like typically kind of coded as as white middle class American um, and, and kind of problematic, but um, it clearly represents something really good here. Um, and I just think it's interesting juxtaposed uh, like back to back scenes of her saving for this kind of way out of of her kind of crappy uh, you know background into. Um, you know, something better in her life. The next scene is, um, you know, talking about this successful penny auction where uh, the Farmers Association managed to save uh, a white woman's house, right? Um, so the, that racial dynamic is really interesting. And then added with the one theme that I really wish uh, the show would have worked in but um, didn't is uh, the indigenous lands that obviously – all of American drama, you know, kind of takes place, you know, as it's setting. And uh, I've been looking for records of, um, like, what were the indigenous tribes up to in Iowa at that time? Um, and I haven't been able to find a whole lot, but it would have been really interesting to have 
a character or, or a few representing that, um, you know, portion of the populace as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder how much of that kind of comes down to what the the politics would have been like around indigenous people in a small town in Iowa like that. Um, I guess if you find out more, you should let us know. Send us an email. <laughs> uh, but yeah, especially that stuff with Bessie is really fascinating, her setting up uh, what that represents for her. Um, I was thinking, too, about Tony Toast when we interviewed him about the show. He made that comment about how their relationship is so transactional in an important way. Uh, and he said it's sort of a nod to how relationships have become commodified or uh, you know, tied to these kind of financial relationships even today in neoliberal capitalism. But uh, it's an interesting way of backing off the emotional intensity that got ratcheted up in the last episode with Bessie really putting herself out there, being vulnerable, talking to her dad that she doesn't really like that much uh, and getting him to, to do this, right? Really sticking her neck out for him and then having that be uh, reduced to basically a, a business partner situation um, is an interesting character moment. Uh, yeah, and the the racial politics around her and Victor both in this episode, I think, come out in really fascinating ways. Like you were just saying, Drew, she has this this dream of basically living a, a white middle class kind of life. Um, and the there's a similar but very different sort of uh, desire that gets played out in Victor's situation, too. Uh, there's one confrontation that he has with Seth where, you know, Seth is saying uh, we're all making sacrifices and Victor says something to the effect of, yeah, for a couple of years. But, you know, for us, it's been 300 years. Right. And uh, he's just sort of trying to provide uh, for his family. And it's a different kind of, of historical struggle that he's involved with. Um, I thought that was actually really interesting, the way that they pulled both of those kind of stories out. Yeah, totally. Because in the case of Victor, um, it... You know, like, it's really easy just to, to say, like, oh, he's a scab or whatever, but that adds a whole lot of complexity to the story that I think, you know, takes some time to deal with. So it's an interesting part. Yeah. Can we talk just briefly about what happens at the very end? I don't know if you want to skip that far ahead, but as long as we're talking about Victor. Yeah. Why not? Sure. Um, so in the scene where, yeah, he's getting called a scab and all of the other farmers are, um, you know, kind of like patrolling this transaction, which represents a real betrayal to them. Um, it seems like before things totally go south, he suddenly reveals to, I bet, I guess, double cross the, um, yeah, the store owners, and he he gets a gun, but then that isn't exactly clear to me, like what's going on there. Yeah, well, because at the end he's like, um, you know, I need a, I need a minute to think about this, right? And mm-hmm. then uh, Creeley forces everyone's hand and starts shooting. So it it's like um to me to me the the scene read like um you know Victor is is you know going to go back on the um the union and actually sell his milk because he's going to get a good deal out of it and he needs to provide for his family and all these things but then at the end it seems like he's about to have a change in heart where he might not do it and then before he can you know it's all preempted and it's it's um even like that that last bit though it's so like you know he's victor's like in shock standing there as everyone else has just been completely like blown away and then creely jams the money into his hand and they take the milk so yeah pretty interesting it's a very complicated situation for sure yeah uh i'm curious to see how the rest of that develops um I feel like maybe we should work backwards if we're kind of <laughs> coming in at the end. Sorry, Dean. Didn't mean to fast. No, 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 it's fine. Uh, I mean, all these things are connected. Uh, we should work backwards just to the scene where all of this division occurs at the negotiating table, 
right? So yeah. this is an episode that is culminating a series of struggles and they finally feel like they have uh, demonstrated their ability and they they feel in a position of power enough to negotiate for not even something that crazy, right? That It seems like they're negotiating for the same rates that other people in the state are getting. Um, so they're not even being exorbitant or anything. They just want equal pay. Uh, but at the bargaining table, the sort of spooky or uh, evil genius move that Creeley makes is uh, after they make an offer to sell at a certain price, both the corn and milk, um, they are met with a counter offer that says they can meet the milk price, but not the corn price. And that divides the labor movement, right? Because the corn gets to be stacked in a silo and the milk has to be poured out. So at the end of the strike, one group will definitely be uh, less, uh, will have less product to sell. Um, and right. I think that's a really fascinating thing because like, it's true, right? The, the economic situation is true. Uh, and the inequity of that situation is also true. Even after everything shakes out, uh, one group would be in better shape than the other. Um, and I think that what is really strong about this show and this episode in particular is that it really drives home the motivations that someone would have to do something that you would even maybe in an idealistic sense, hope that they wouldn't right? never sell out the union or whatever. Uh, but you have to sympathize with Victor. And I think they do a really good job of uh, explaining his motivations, uh, creating not just his own personal kind of story, but a whole social story around him in which, you know, he might take this deal. Uh, and I think it's worth talking about that, you know, how the labor movement both has solidarity among different kinds of, of workers, uh, but also how it can be easy to divide the movement against itself when uh, one sort of segment of that solidarity stands to gain. Yeah. And something else that I'm curious about um, is the relationship between family and movement, I guess. And you see this kind of inverted in the Connie Nunn story where she is talking, I mean, inconsistently um, about not being after, like she says, this surprise gift is for the man of the house, meaning yeah. you know, she, she's going to murder just the man. Um, the family's not responsible, right? But then she threatens the kid of, of another of the, the men. Um, and it just got me thinking about the, the relationship between family and movement, because you see it again in Victor's family, right? And he can say, like, I have to provide for my family, which is exactly what the rest of the farmers would say, too. Um, and thinking about just in my own life, like the degree to which like uh, having other relational commitments is both, um, you know, it, it kind of limits the the degree of radical activity that, you know, you might pursue otherwise. Um, but it's also kind of like the reason that you're doing it, like to be able to better care for other people, especially those in your vicinity. I don't know. There's just a contradiction kind of built into that. Yeah. Um, something that really sticks out to me too is uh, when Victor and Creeley are having like their initial conversation in Victor's barn or no, I'm sorry. That's, I got that wrong. Um, uh, Victor and uh, Pastor Seth are having a conversation in Victor's barn and like Seth is trying to convince, um, convince Vic Victor to like stick with the union and not to, you know, not to sell his milk. Um, Victor's just like, well, you know, my, my kids wake up hungry in the middle of the night. And like, that's, you know, it's like, it, it is like this really hard situation where, um, I, I don't know, man, like it's a really tough thing. It's hard to stick. Uh, 
obviously the union is good for everybody, but it's hard. It would be hard to stick with a union when you do like actually have kids to provide for and you have a family that like, you know, needs to eat food. Um, it, it's, you know, like, um, unless the union is going to step in and like really like help out or something, like if there's a lot of mutual aid or something, or if they can even give that, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, um, it's easy just to say that like Victor is like double crossing them or something like, like Pastor Seth does, he calls him Judas, which I think is pretty heavy handed. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I think the the situation is not as clean cut as just like he's the bad guy betraying them. It's just like, you know, he's in a real material situation that's very difficult and he should stick with the union for sure. But like, you know, I understand the logic in that choice that he made. Well, that is interesting that um, even within the show, uh, certainly at other points in history, right, families like uh, – the the non kind of wage laborers but those reliant on them right uh have been involved in like directly at times in labor struggles you mentioned like mutual aid right um but even within the show you see uh and i'm forgetting her name um but the woman who uh gets her her land saved right um but she goes on to become martha riley i think yeah she goes on to be more of a participant in these kind of ongoings, although most of the time it's the men, right? Who like who is the union? It's the the farmers, the men. But like especially on a farm, uh, you you know in a kind of heteronormative you know relationship where you are both working, even though like it's the man who is the farmer. It's like well the wife is just as much right. It's just gender division of labor, um, and there's really no structural reason not to widen the union. Um, because it's not like an NLRB kind of a thing, right? It's it, what is the union? It's people banding together in their common interests, like against ruling class. Um, they could think of it at, at more of a familial level, right? But I don't see Victor's wife um, ever interacting with anyone else, right? I just see her interacting with him, uh, and so that maybe that represents like the the reason there is this contradiction, um, where family does become this kind of, uh, you know, almost liability maybe it's because the they haven't been framing the labor struggle widely enough to bring people in to participate you know yeah um it is worth noting too though that uh victor's wife does give pause a little bit too right and she's like is this are you sure you want to do this right so she's like she intervenes kind of but but still like you're right though it's it's um in the show the representation of the union is very much like it's just the it's just the guys it's good to talk more about the gender issues in the show generally too, because uh, two of the characters in general that I think sort of uh, try to complicate the story, um, but maybe not enough are uh, Seth's wife, Amelia. Right. And she is like Seth's wife (laughs) in the show. Um, And then Connie, right. Both of them are kind of like playful with gender roles in a, in really weird ways. So this this gets dramatized in this episode in, in both cases, right? At the beginning, uh, Amelia resists being thought of as just the the good biblical wife, and uh, they have sex on the table, which I guess is a pretty uh, you know pretty non pastor wife thing to do, apparently. Um, and uh, so that's like that's one piece, right? And then she also becomes the person agitating in the newspaper office and all that. So she gets a kind of role, an outsized role for a woman within that struggle. Uh, in the show so far and then Connie too is like 
playful with gender roles so that she can murder other people, right? It goes back to that story that she was telling uh, her her child, her dear child, in the last episode, that you got to play the, the social game and then exploit it when it's good for you. So, right, she wins the favor of the uh, wife of that one um, strike leader. Who knows exactly why? Maybe it's kind of like sadistic or maybe she's feeling some kind of weird uh, sensitivity toward her she's just trying to confirm the identity of the person she wants to murder who knows we don't really find out but she does it on the pretext that she's selling perfume right and she even makes this appeal to well don't you want to smell good for your you know strike leading husband who had a hard time or whatever uh and then she comes in with this gift for him right a gift for the man of the house is the way that she phrases it uh and i think there's just a lot of really interesting ways in which those two characters specifically uh make use of uh the assumptions about gender that are going around in the great depression at that time uh but exploit them for very different purposes i was gonna say i think you guys have mentioned this before but i think amelia is probably my favorite character like I, she's certainly my favorite like actor in the show. Mm-hmm. She's great. Yeah, and this is the episode where she kind of like reveals. Um, I think there were hints before, but she, you know, reveals to DL that that she's be- the one behind all this propaganda. Um, that she has more yeah. kind of, you know, of a hand on the levers of of the radical power than we might have thought. Yeah, that that scene in the beginning is very interesting. Um, so. Uh, right, so she goes to talk to DL and like why he's not covering the strike, and like instead, like uh, Babbage, the newspaper guy, makes him write about like Hollywood fashion or something, which is pretty yeah, funny. Yeah. Um, but then she just like marches into Babbage's office and like lays into him, right? And he's like, "Well, we're not going to write about that because it's too depressing or whatever." <laughs> um, and she's like, and then you know, DL follows her outside, and um. He's, he's just like, well, you know, I'd have to, I don't want to ruin my name in this industry. And she's like, well, just change your name. And that's like when, that's the tip <laughs> of the hat uh, that she's already done that. And then, and then DL has this look on his face like, oh yeah, good, good idea. <laughs> I never <laughs> thought about that. Um, yeah, it's cool. Um, hmm. uh, so uh, maybe we should go back to Connie Nunn though, before we go, go any further. Cause there's a lot, there's a few more things we can say about her too. Right. So she's, she's there to She's she's there because she's tracking down, like the the trail of the Amelia's pamphlets. Really, right? That's mm-hmm. um that's why she's there. Because in yeah. the yeah, in in the previous episode, uh, we see that the, those two guys going to the auto worker strike and they like you know give them weapons and whatever and probably some pamphlets as well. So she sees the pamphlet there on the table and that's like the giveaway that she's looking for. Um, and then uh, right before she shoots this guy, um, says you know I I got it from some. Uh, some pastor in Iowa, and that's like that's the the big moment for Connie, where it's like, well, now we know where she's going next, right? She's been on the hunt for Seth this whole time, and now she's gonna get him or something. Um, so that's uh, the big turn in Connie Nunn's story. Yeah, she's a really interesting character. We were talking for a minute just before we started recording, but I think we should bring it out now. Uh, she's interesting to counterpose to Creeley, right? Because they're both professional strike breakers, one way or another. Um, they're both tied to professional organizations, but uh, Connie's presence is far more um, kind of ruthless and violent and not really strategic or tactically considered in the same way that Creeley's is. Uh, she seems mostly personally motivated, whereas Creeley's pretty much business motivated. I mean, there's there's personal uh, moments in it, I guess, but those are kind of secondary and he's he's very cautious and careful as he navigates how to do his job, right? Do it well. 
Whereas Connie doesn't really, she doesn't even seem accountable to anybody. I mean, there's no, at least at this stage of the show, there's no Martin Eggers hide behind Connie, you know, a few, a few ways up. Uh, Calvin Rumpel isn't connected to her in the way that he's connected to Creeley. Um, so she's kind of like a weird, like mercenary for capital in a way that Creeley is, is as well, but in a, a more kind of institutionalized way or something. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to sort it out exactly, but maybe we could talk a little bit more about those differences. Yeah. So, so far, all we know about Connie and her sort of motivations are just that, um, a, a strike, a striker. I mean, I guess Pastor Seth is kind of, um, <laughs> I guess the, that's the idea is that Pastor Seth probably killed her husband, who was also, I think, on strike. And now she doesn't want anyone to strike anywhere because her husband was killed in that situation. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or at least that's my understanding of it. Maybe I'm wrong. But I guess to me what I don't like about Connie Nunn or, or maybe it's not what I, what I don't like about her. It's just like what I find so like far fetched about her is that her motivation seems, at least at this point, really bizarre. <laughs> like. It seems bizarre in the sense that it's just like it's this one thing that happened to you that she's putting, you know, she's forcing into this larger narrative now that like organized labor is bad. And now that she's going to go kill the bad men is just like such a stretch for me and just doesn't really it doesn't even really make sense to me, I guess, in, in a way that I can understand in the story. But that's interesting, Matt, right, because that tracks with American ideology, at least, you know, for the last <laughs> half century. Right. Is that like the labor movement was like a generative force for, you know, at least the American middle class, um, even after it, 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 the the real militancy had kind of maybe uh, faded from the actual working class. Um, And yet we have this kind of built in, you know, ideological apparatus that associates unions with the mob or associates it with you know, the, the democratic kind of, you know, city hall machinery or whatever. Um, it was sometimes for good reason. Right. But it is this kind of hasty generalization. Yeah. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. Right. It seems like, it seems like Connie's motivation is a hasty generalization. Like that's, that's the whole thing. Like this thing happened to me and now I need to go get rid of all of the bad men or something. And the worst one is in Iowa. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it is weird, though, like she it's true that it's a hasty generalization, but there's something even more like it's not like her husband dies and then she sits at home and she's kind of like, uh, like, I hate every worker ever. Like, I hate strikes and all that kind of stuff. It's like her husband dies and then she's like, you know, I'm going to be like a vigilante for capital. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. In this kind of like horrifying sort of way, like she's a really weird villain in the story just because I don't know. She's like a force of capital. She's like more like a force of nature in some ways. Uh, whereas Creeley yeah. is like more of a person. And also, isn't it wild, too, that the, the two people or I mean, she's killed more than two people, but the two situations where she's killed people on camera are always in the context of a family with a daughter who is now out. Right. Like that's that's the reoccurring theme of, of her murders is that like there's this person has a family. They have a child. The child is a daughter and they're not in the room. And that's when she's going to kill them. And it's like that's the exact same thing that happened to you. Like, do you not see that you're just perpetuating this this situation? Right. This is so crazy. Yeah. I don't know. There's something like specifically evil about her. Um, maybe yeah. we'll find out more yeah, as totally. we go. Uh, yep. So another thing that I wanted to bring up uh, that Drew also mentioned before we went on air is uh, browderism in particular. And since you brought it up, Drew, I just want to give you a chance to talk about it because I, I think you're right to pull it out as a theme. And it's a really great way to think more about the show, especially because when we asked Tony Toast a while back, 
whether or not Seth and Amelia are, for example, members of the Communist Party USA. He was like, I, I don't know, like, whatever you want. <laughs> if you want them to be communists, they're communists, and then that's what it is. Uh, so maybe you could kind of fill us in about that and why you think it's a, a suggestive way to talk about broaderism and damnation. Yeah, so um, I, I just interpret Seth and Amelia as communists, um, maybe not to the same degree as uh, like Philip and Elizabeth and the Americans, you know, taking their marching orders from Moscow. But um, like historically by the 30s, uh, it seems like most of the revolutionary kind of, you know, uh, labor militant energy had gone into uh, the CPUSA. Um, I encourage everybody to read Hammer and Ho at some point where it talks about Similar things going on in Alabama during this time, but with a much uh, larger kind of racial um, element in terms of like uh, clearing the ground, like literally for the civil rights movement eventually. But I'm reading it right now and it's so similar. Yeah, it's it's, it's just you got to read it. It's so good. Right. And so one of the things they talk about is the the popular front period in Hammer and Home, but also um, it, it during. Uh, well, shortly after the show, you know, it, into World War Two. So I guess maybe eight to ten years later, but uh, the general tenor is that the the international communist movement, you know, kind of rooted in Russia, is trying to find a way to um, adapt itself more locally, and in the United States, that takes the form of Browderism. So Earl Browder was the general secretary of the CPUSA um, from like 1930 to 1945 thereabouts, and uh, basically set the tone for what is an internationalist movement, right? Like internationalist communism, uh, but in a nationalist key. And so that's what it, a lot of times it gets kind of condemned as now, because of course, American nationalism has, uh, you know, white supremacy at, at its heart. Um, and yet it seems like, how can you make inroads in America without at least trying to adapt, um, if not subvert some of the the kind of founding myths of our society, including um, problematically this idea of, uh, I mean, settlerism, right? Like being a settler, having your own plot of land, um, which is both like the promise and the the kind of uh, threat to the indigenous people, obviously, but not to go too far afield. But anyway, the idea of broaderism is adapting communism to specifically American conditions and uh, it takes the form in this show, I think, of uh, adapting it to religion in particular, um, the kind of, of, you know, generally evangelical Christianity that Pastor Seth seems to be espousing. And uh, as well as the kind of frontier individualism of the farmers themselves. Yeah, I think that's a good connection. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's good, too, that you bring it up because this show does a lot of interesting work on the American project, like as well as capitalism and all that kind of stuff, too. Um, you know, in the I think it was episode three. That's the one that opens up with the, the baseball game and this, mm -hmm. you know, all American family. Right. And it turns out that the, the dad is a member of the, the Black Legion. Uh, so it's true that there's this kind of tension uh, between the American identity of white supremacy and then this kind of cobbled together uh, American Protestant identity, I guess, of uh, the communism of Seth in particular. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I wonder how much that will track as we go. Uh, I know that 
Um, the subtext of the show, too, had been, uh, Tony had told us, to sort of tell a story about how America gets founded and whether or not communism would end up being the alternative to that or a, a participant in that, you know, who knows. Uh, but it's worth mentioning as a historical point to kind of contextualize the, the fiction a little more broadly. Yeah, it's just communism with American characteristics. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's take uh, a couple of other characters um, to just round out the conversation. So two uh, that I think we could talk more about. One is D.L. Sullivan and the role of the media in this episode. And the second is the sheriff. Uh, so I'll leave it to the both of you, uh, whichever one you're more excited to talk about. Well, we kind of we got D.L. Sullivan, at least yeah, for the most so. part. Well, yeah. you know what? No, there was, there was the part at the end, actually, that exactly, might be worth yeah. talking about. Sorry, I I just could only think of him at the beginning. Well, so at the end, D.L. Sullivan is there. He's there to cover the uh, to cover the the end of the strike is what he thinks it will be, um, because the you know the milk's being delivered. So he wants to be on the scene and get a, you know, get the scoop um, and stop writing about Hollywood fashion, um, I guess. But anyways, he he's there and he seems like pretty excited about it. And then Creeley's like, "No, you probably want to go inside because <laughs> there are gunmen on the roof." Um, but the, the thing that's really interesting about, uh, T.L. Sullivan is that like, you know, he's already shown his sympathies for the strike and definitely for Amelia. Um, so there's some stuff going on there, but at the end, Creeley turns to him. He's like, you know, you're going to report on, um, these events where I'm defending myself and dang, it sucks. All these people got shot, but they shot at me first. And D.L. Sullivan just has to be like, yeah, I guess so. Because I mean, um, in reality, I mean, like, you know, there's no way that, that the town newspaper can't report on a bunch of people getting shot in town. But um, with Babbage being the guy that it seems like he is in charge of the newspaper, it's definitely going to be spun in a particular way. So um, I imagine that uh, I, I imagine that D.L. Sullivan's going to have to write the, you know, the official story, but then he'll have to he'll have to have his own like pen name or whatever and write the real story at some point. Yeah. And that was such a good dramatic um, and thematic moment, too, because. Yeah, I, this show does such a good job of kind of compressing all of these themes into like a single small town, kind of in the way that The Simpsons does, right? Where you've just got like these <laughs> this wild, like variant cast of characters, like plunked into a you know a relatively small setting. Um, but the like if in this moment, DL is kind of representing the local news, right? And not to like plug another show, but Citations Needed podcast had a really good episode on local crime reporting and how it's basically just like like uh a mouthpiece for police propaganda right always taking their side and of course like if you you know interpret like the police as an arm of capital however indirectly right uh the, the same thing is going on here right he's he's getting the story from uh a very partial interest yeah so first of all, let me say, Citations Needed is a very good podcast. And if you like our podcast, you'll like theirs too, because theirs is very good. And ours is pretty good too. But um, on Drew's note about police and uh, local crime reports being the uh, mouthpiece of the like police propaganda, um, the one character we still have left to talk about is Sheriff Berryman, who is kind of actually a weird character in the story because he is he's not doing the usual cop uh, as guardian of capital thing. Um, so in this, there's this like, you know, as, as the shootout's happening, um, the one, uh, the one Riley boy whose names I cannot remember shoot. Well, anyways, he's in jail cause they think that, uh, he killed somebody, 
But anyways, he's like in jail and he's yelling for uh, Sheriff Berryman. Say like, you know, they're shooting each other. You got to go stop this. And Sheriff Berryman's like, well, we'll just let them shoot each other. He says, uh, I'll read <laughs> right? about it in the paper. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'll read about it in the paper tomorrow. Um, and I think that's interesting because, um, you know, it's not what you'd expect a cop to do. Um, but it is what Sheriff Berryman does because he thinks that uh, Creeley's out to get him in one way or another. And he also thinks that the pastor's no good for the town. So he's going to let them just kill each other. And it's a pretty interesting move. Well, it's interesting because he's like a, a total careerist, right? Like he uh, he's only interested yeah. in getting reelected. And so if he ends up siding one way or the other, that's like less votes. But if he stays out of it, then he's, I guess he just perceives that everybody's going to sort it out themselves or at least like won't blame him for, for being on one side or the other. I just think it's so funny. Like his character is much more of a politician than like a police officer, like in in terms of like the actual role that he has in relation to, you know, labor. Um, But it reminds me of The Wire, which is funny because like you get these political figures in The Wire who are significantly up the chain of command and he is their analog, but in a town of like 5,000 people. Right. <laughs> it's just like at a, it's the stakes are so small, but he is so self-important. It's just really funny to watch. Yeah. Well, he has to be self-important because if he's if he if he doesn't focus on his reelection, then his whole enterprise of speakeasy and brothel will be uh, down the tubes because, you know, another another sheriff comes down and, and not be OK with that. So it's like um, it's interesting because he has to I mean, he has to take up his own interest first and then, you know, maybe the town. It's just the funniest idea to think that there'd be like a giant shootout and then the cops just be like, yeah, they'll just kill each other. (laughs) But he says he just wants things to go back to normal. Right. He doesn't care. Right. And that line just stuck out to me because, I mean, that's exactly the line of a lot of uh, the kind of centrist politicians who have been raising, you know, basically been shedding crocodile tears over Trump. Right. But Mm. basically just like biding their time until hopefully some degree of stasis returns. Yeah. Uh, a stasis where the staff's clothes remain exactly uh, is yeah is maintained yeah uh i i like that you bring up too matt that he is sort of um importantly embroiled in the uh extra legal practices right of the speakeasy and the brothel because it also is a a, a way in which he's he's licensed a certain amount of violence that happens under his watch and in fact you know yeah. profits from it uh, but there's there are other kinds of violence that he does not profit from that are uniquely bad or or need to be monitored carefully or you know a- allowed to sort of run their course as long as it is sort of mutually assured destruction or something like that. Um, and the the myth that everything could go back to normal, I think, is also like you're right, Drew, that it, he's more of a politician than a cop. But there's a certain cop logic, too, to being like, well, uh, life functions in this way, right, where like normal people do normal stuff. And this is just a, a blip on it. Like eventually all these rational actors will go back to being normal. Uh, and I think that is an interesting kind of logic to to put out there as well. Yeah, because it won't go back to normal, <laughs> you know, Be- because like I guess what's what's so weird about the whole situation, too, is that even like the, no matter who wins, right, the town is different. If Creeley wins, then like a ton of the town will be like annexed by Martin Eggers Hyde PhD and like <laughs> turned into a robot farm or whatever. <laughs> and if the strikers win, then like, you know, communism, probably not. But they have, a, then, you know, the, but if the farmers win, you know, things change for the way that they work. So, you know, Sheriff Berryman, like it, it's weird because like um, 
he is a career politician. He has the cop logic, but it's like it's it's all based on this like really very conservative way of thinking about the world where like, you know, you don't want things to change because they can only get worse and nothing can ever get better. Um, and if you try to make things better, then uh, chances are you'll end up just screwing it up or something and it'll get worse. And it, the, the best bet that that we have is just to keep things just so even though they're not good for everybody, we have to keep them the status quo intact so that, you know, at least things don't get any worse for anybody. And that is, I mean, pretty clearly, at least from as demonstrated in this show, like a very weird way to think because there's no way you're going to do that. It's not staying the same. Humans can actually influence the world and they do constantly. So like trying to maintain a status quo doesn't make any sense in these uh, kinds of situations. Yeah. It's like that bad, uh, uh, Facebook meme that everybody's capitalist parents share at one point where it's like, yeah, capitalism is a terrible system, but it's better than all the alternatives, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, well, one other thing that we could maybe talk about more is the relationship between Seth and Creeley, which gets developed further in this episode. Uh, you know, right. Seth is revealed to be the, the older half brother who like protects Creeley from the, uh, the abuses of their super weird dad. Um, and Creeley is revealed to be the soft one who changes, you know, the, the people change line at the end. Um, so Seth calls his bluff at one point by trying to embarrass him by making him, you know, read the offer that he writes down on a piece of paper and he can't, uh, and that's a, a blow to his self-esteem or ego or whatever. Uh, and then later, um, Seth gets embarrassed far more dramatically, uh, by the murder of strikes and the, you know, total, uh, disruption of the union uh that Creeley has succeeded in in doing uh so what do we make of that i mean there's a there's a lot of like weird masculinity stuff going in there's a lot of scenes of uh belts uh being used to you know beat beat a kid for being too soft um but anything else stand out to you guys yeah this like twist i think is maybe the best kind of part of the entire show for me anyway um, because I was totally expecting, like, whatever backstory they would reveal about these guys, once you find out they are half-brothers, I would just assume that Creeley's soft side is that he's, like, an older brother who somehow looked out for Seth, right? But the reverse is true. Like, he was, it was Creeley who was this, you know, the sissy boy in, in the words of their dad or whatever, right? Um, and it was Seth who was, like, always kind of the hard one. And then over time, you know, Seth is kind of like, uh, at least performatively, as he's taken on this preacher persona, kind of softened his edges to some degree. Although, obviously, um, that changes at a moment's notice, depending on the situation. Um, but Creeley has just tried to, you know, or had his softness beaten out of him, right? Yeah, that's right. And there's also a sense in which Seth, uh, the one character trait that really pulls through from his childhood is he has that kind of almost paternalistic uh, protectionist um, impulse with respect to the working class now, right? Like uh, they're they're kind of getting pushed around or, or beaten by the like the dad of capital. And uh, he's trying to step in and, you know, take those blows or like try to get them to stand up for themselves. Right. Um, I think that's like an interesting thing too. Uh, but you're right. There, there's a brilliant sort of sort of twist here. I guess if you would have asked me which one was the older brother, I probably would have said Creeley too. I think you're right about that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's weird how that shakes out. It's probably because I mean, because Seth has like that uh, that weird haircut, and that makes him <laughs> seem a lot younger. Okay, can we? Can I um, ask a question about like your guys' takes on Seth? 
because I go back and forth between like really liking him and think thinking that like his role like it's really interesting, especially because you're always viewing it with that ironic knowledge, right? That he this is not who he is, but in some ways it's who he's becoming, you know, and and we see these moments of like real faith kind of genuine faith kind of bubbling to the surface in spite of himself. Um but the the performance I go back and forth as to whether like how I feel about it because it it seems to engage in some of what I was worried about when I started the show, which is, I mean, basically like Godfather Christianity, right? It's <laughs> the the very stripped down, uh, not sexy exactly, but like symbolically prepackaged uh, yeah. faith. You know what I mean? Um, or like the Boondock Saints, maybe not Godfather, but like Boondock Saints. <laughs> Right. Well, it's just kind of generic. Is that what you mean? It's generic, and but it's like uh, it's all of these lines that are kind of said with a lot of gravitas. But it's like we're, you're you're just holding a gun. Like that's only interesting because you're holding a gun, right? Which makes <laughs> it not that interesting. And there are moments where I feel that way, but the more I think about it, um, like when when Seth is saying these things like overly earnestly, like the Lord sees through all. He says that at one point. Um, yeah. And there's moments where it feels kind of cringy throughout the show for me. Maybe you guys don't feel that way. Um, but it's just like it's a little much. Like that's that's how you're working religion in. But then when, combined with the fact that like uh, this is kind of an evangelical moment, right, when, when you certainly have preachers uh, preaching like this. But then also how would an undercover agent try to adopt the mannerisms of – you know? I mean it, it's the religious analog to Browderism, right? Like – how do you create communism with Christian characteristics or whatever? Um, and so I, yeah. the more I think about it, the the less critical I am of that, like boondock saintsery, I guess. Right. I, I kind of, I see what you're saying. Like sometimes it does come off like really generic to me. Like it is, it is definitely true that like pastor Seth doesn't have like a robust Trinitarian theology or something, <laughs> you know, like he doesn't have any, uh, yeah, he doesn't probably even know any of the creeds. That's okay. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes for me it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like um, in like the first episode when he's like talking about Martin Luther or something and like that's where he kind of gets the idea about like what they should do. I don't know. Sometimes it works like that. Um, but uh, I think I think Seth is at his best and most authentically Christian is just when he's being like pastoral to the union guys. Sometimes when he's like confronting other people and using the Christian language as like a guise or whatever – it is kind of cringy, but um, sometimes sometimes it comes across really well for me and sometimes not so much. Yeah, I think the cringiness, though, kind of makes sense because it is ham-fisted, but it's kind of supposed to be in a certain respect, right? Like, yeah. you don't get the impression that Seth, like, went to seminary and, like, then went out into the world. It's like he's uh, just patching all this stuff together. Like, this is just a thing that he heard somewhere that somebody said, and he's like, oh, I should say that, right? So he he's, like... <laughs> sort of uh, clunkily putting these things out uh, in a way that works, or at least is consistent with the character. Um, and they do land in the narrative. Like, people kind of take a, a second second thought, I guess, about their actions or whatever. And as, you know, maybe cringy as it might be, I find that believable. Like, Christianity is very cringy. Like, if you talk to other Christians, <laughs> it's, it's not compelling it's rhetoric. Um, and uh, there's a part of it that I find kind of endearing, or at least, like, it makes sense within the context of the show. Um, 
Yeah, I think you're right. Well, while we're talking about Seth, maybe uh, we should wrap up soon. But I do want to say this part because it is like the strangest part of this episode for me. Um, so like Seth takes on the, in, in this episode, he takes on the role of the negotiator for the union. Like he shows up to the food distributor and he shows up to the negotiation table as like the guy that's going to be there to like, you know, make make things work out. And every single time he shows up and Creeley's there, Creeley's just like, what's a pastor doing here? Why is this guy here? Why doesn't anyone think this is so weird? And every time Seth is just like, the, the Lord sent me. It's like, what are you talking about? I mean, he doesn't say that exactly, but you know, it's like, he never has a very good answer for like, what in the hell he is doing here with these guys. And that bugs me so much. Like, please, Seth, come up with a good answer for why you're here with these guys. Like, just just give us something. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Uh, but it also is, again, like, I feel like it's consistent. That, you know, he's being thrown off his balance by even the presence of Creeley being there. Like, right. um, yeah, <laughs> there's something about the awkwardness of it um, that maybe in a way makes it more real to me, even though so much of the show is very, like, larger than life, you know, arch- archetypal right. in some ways. But um, yeah, I don't know. Th- those are like the more human moments because I'm like, oh, no, if I was in that situation, I w- would have nothing to say either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's awkward. It's awkward not in, in not saying it's not realistic. It's just awkward. And I feel frustrated that he doesn't say something different. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, well, great. Uh, episode four. It's a good one. We're still into it. A lot of hot takes. A lot of good broaders in the conversation this episode. Uh, Drew, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, especially, you know, as the the progeny of uh, the <laughs> this region of farmers, uh, it's very cool to get some of your um, your own personal take on it. And uh, we're glad to have you back in one way or another in the Magnificast uh, uh, audio universe. Thanks so much, guys. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Damnificast. If you like what you heard, you can just keep on supporting us on Patreon. Um, Yeah, uh, maybe these will be public someday, but you're hearing them way first. So that's uh, one of the benefits of being a Patreon subscriber to the Magnificast. Hey, the Magnificast is also doing a a book club this month. So make sure you get in on that because that's cool. Um, Cool. Well, uh, thanks, Pete Seeger, for the opening song. Uh, Hopefully you don't mind that we're using it. We'll see you all next time with the uh, fifth episode of Damnation.